Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Eric Newsom. He has a very interesting uh, career as a writer and uh, writing about music and other topics and uh, in uh, public radio, of course, and his memoir, a uh, very interesting memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. Uh, here's how he describes it uh, on his website. Uh, Eric Newsom is afraid of the supernatural, and for good reason. As a high school oddball in Canton, Ohio, during the early 1980s, he became convinced he was being haunted by the ghost of a little girl in a blue dress who lived in his parents' attic. It began as a weird premonition during his dreams, something that his quickly diminishing circle of friends chalked up as a way to get attention. It ended with Eric in a mental ward, having apparently destroyed his life before it truly began. The only thing that kept him from the brink, his friendship with a girl named Lara, a classmate who was equal parts devoted friend and enigmatic crush. The kind of strange connection you can only forge when you're young, Lara walked Eric back to normal only to become a ghost herself in a tragic twist of fate. Eric Newsom, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Uh, so uh, this must have been, and, and I'm sure it was, uh, reading the book, um, cathartic, difficult, scary, all of those to, to write? Yeah, I, I think it's, that's the way to sum it up. It was uh, um, uh it was not, never intended to be the book that you have sitting in front of you. It was originally supposed to be kind of a, a romp of me going around to places that were haunted, being a person who's scared of ghosts, and there was going to be this hilarious journey through watching me be scared in these kind of ridiculous, funny places. And as I started writing the book and doing going to these haunted places, I started realizing that the story I wanted to tell was actually quite different. Mm. And it it does have elements of that. You do go to scary places. There's, there's some very funny moments. But, it, yeah, it did become much, much more. Uh, first of all, tell us, uh, you, you write early in the book that you and your wife have an ongoing uh, battle. Uh, you don't you don't like closed doors. Uh, in our house. It, it's not like I don't like closed doors anyhow. I mean, like when people invite me over for dinner at their house, they don't have to worry about me using the restroom and, and bathroom and not closing the door. I mean, it, it really is in my house because when I grew up, I was in this, this, this house that had this um, attic with these two rooms in it. One eventually became my bedroom and the other one, the closed door all the time, I was convinced that this this ghost was on the other side of that door. And when I see closed doors and, you know, with the, the issue with my wife, um, this has been going on for years and she finally one day asked, so why do you want the doors open? And I said, well, just to make sure there's not a ghost on the other side. And she thought that was kind of ridiculous and I had never really known much about this whole story, and which shows how much I kept it hidden. You know, and the, the irony of all this is that you know, we've kind of come to a, to a, to a detente moment with this of, of we've kind of figured out how to work together, and now we have a two-and-a-half-year-old son who runs around the house slamming shut every door he encounters. <laughs> So he, he works against Daddy's interests there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wonder if I could have you read a, a passage from the from the prologue. This is page 11. Sure. Uh, this sort of uh, sets, uh, and, and this will have to be set up a little bit. I want you to start um, with, I guess, the uh, third full paragraph on page 11. Uh, here's the thing about the story, and, and then go to the end of the uh, first full paragraph on page 12. Yeah. 
So you you uh, opened the book uh, talking about this experience you and a, a friend Jimmy and, and Laura that we talked about uh, at the beginning had uh, in Canton, Ohio. This is early '80s, and it's uh, it, it's becoming the Rust Belt at this point. Right. And so you have a, an encounter with law enforcement out playing beer golf. This is a a uh, an invention of your friend Jimmy's. Yes. And uh, he he gets you all off, and then and then off you go with this this passage. Yeah. So, would you like me to start reading? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, just passes it. Here's the thing about the story I just shared. Yeah. Here, here's the thing about the story I just shared. The thing that makes it feel like a ghost story. I'm the only one left to tell it. I often warn people about being my friend for two reasons. First, I'm a lousy friend. I forget people's birthdays. I can't remember their kids' names. I don't recall where, they're, where they went on vacation or what their friends, husbands, wives, lovers do for a living. The second reason is that a lot of my friends end up dead. I've seen a disproportionately large number of my friends die at young ages. Steve and Scott died of AIDS. Tim, Connor, and another guy named Tim, all from various forms of cancer. Drugs took Dan, Monica, and a third guy named Tim. Brad, Megan, Jim, and Sherry all died in auto accidents. My friend Doug destroyed his liver and died. I don't even want to think about the ones who died from suicide. You name a path to an early grave, and I'm sure I've had some formerly alive friend who followed it. I'm even, I even have a few friends who died with no one quite certain how or why. They just did. Regardless, I've seen more than my fair share of untimely deaths. It's left me with a lot of questions. I wonder about what happens to all of them after they die. I worry about who will remember their experiences and stories, right their wrongs, and carry on with what was important to them. I think about how their lives and deaths are supposed to affect me and change me. An unfortunate consequence of this high body count is that when I look back at the friends who've had the most influence on who I've become, I realize that most of them are gone. And then you say one in particular, Laura, I'll have you tell me about, about Laura. You go on a little later, just on that same page, talk about the idea of being a witness. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, now, especially how it relates to Laura and, and, and other friends, maybe that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I, I working for NPR, you know, I hear a lot of NPR stories, and and one was a re- interview that uh, one of our former hosts, Leon Hansen, did with a, a gentleman named uh, uh, Reverend Kyles. Uh, I think his name was Re- Reverend Billy Kyles, where he was he was present on the balcony um, when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, and he. Um, talked about his role in that, and that sometimes God puts people in places to bear witness and to to share with others what they saw. And uh, when I first heard that, I was very struck by it, because I think that people aspire to make history rather than watch history, um, and wondered if perhaps my role in life is to be the survivor and to be the person who tells these stories and stirs up these ghosts and have them teach things to um, the to new people. Yeah, when, when I read that passage, I, I probably had the same reaction you did when you originally encountered it. I, you know, I, I don't want to be the witness. I want to be the actor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but being a witness is okay? Um, well, it depends, because sometimes you're both. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where I've kind of fallen in my role in life is... Um, part of me being an actor or, or sharing my own stories and my own experiences 
is by bringing the the experiences of others along in that story as well. Um, I can, you know, Laura will never tell her story, which, you know, some of the things I've been praised for and criticized for with this book have been my depiction of her, um, and that this is something that happened 25 years after she passed away. And um, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's both the, my my role to tell her story and to tell her story in the context of a larger story. Mm. It's, it's interesting nowadays. You go online and you can read reaction to, to the book from reviewers and from regular folks. And as you mentioned, at least one of those people said that they wondered if Laura really would want to be in the book. I don't know what your thought is. Yeah. 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 And you know what? That's a fair question. But, you know, um, uh, I, uh, when I was working on this book, I spent a lot of time talking to people who knew her and uh, asked that question, like, should I do this? And every one of them, her, her family, her friends, former boyfriends, all of, every single person said, you have an obligation to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the, uh, I think you call it the little girl in the blue dress. There's a, by the way, to preface this, there's a picture. I think this is the actual stairs leading to the attic in your old house? Yeah. In, yeah, in, in the book? book? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, having read those passages with, with you and this little girl and seeing that picture, the the hair is kind of raised on the back of, of my neck. This is, I mean, you were... You were you were doing drugs and you were in a bad place, but you you felt like this this little girl was haunting you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I a couple things that to most people would be completely unrelated that in my twisted young mind I connected together. My family owned an old house in Canton, Ohio. I'm not terribly old; it's probably close to a century old now. But um, uh, it was a brick colonial house, creaky thing, you know. Um, Leaks everywhere, not everywhere, but periodic, you know, just an old house and with old house issues. And one of the things that old houses do is they make noise. And sometimes you know what those noises are and sometimes you don't. And we used to hear these noises coming from the attic, like little thudding noises, and assumed that it was the cat and had gotten up in there. And then we'd notice we'd hear them when the cat was around. So we um, uh, then we started to joke, oh, maybe it's a ghost that lives up there. And around the same time, I started to have a, a series of recurring dreams where I would have some scenes in this dream and sometimes the whole thing. Sometimes I felt I was blindfolded, but the action of the dream was happening around me where I'm basically walking through a field. I pass a table full of people who are talking amongst themselves until I walk up and they're quiet. Then they all look across the field in the direction I'm walking to another opening, another path uh, out of the clearing. And as I enter that clearing, I see a little girl, probably nine or ten years old, wearing a blue dress, and she starts speaking gibberish to me. And as I get closer, and to the point I can almost touch her, I wake up. And I and this happened, <clears throat> excuse me, over and over and over again. And so in my mind, having no explanation for any of this, I assumed it all had to be connected. Hmm. And that the thumping noises I was hearing coming from the attic were this little girl. And that she was desperate to try to tell me something and wanted my attention. And was we were both kind of struggling to understand what she needed to tell me. What was the feeling? Did you do malevolent feeling? Or uh, what was the feeling? Yeah, that's one of the things I've had the most trouble describing to people, um, both in writing the book and in talking about it afterwards. Many people have asked, what's so scary about a little girl 
um, nine-year-old girl. And I said, that's exactly why it was terrifying, is it shouldn't have been. Um, uh, there wasn't like, it wasn't like she had a hollow black eyes or, you know, white skin or, or worms coming out of her nose or something. Um, <clears throat> it was just a little girl. And, um, but I just had this feeling the whole time of she, what she's trying to tell me is a warning or, or a threat or something very, very bad. And the fact that I can't understand her also has meaning, but I have no idea what that meaning is. And the fact that I have these over and over again is a sign that she's really trying to tell me something and I'm just not getting it. And that fear of what that could be um, is what really made it terrifying to me. There are several senses of the word haunted. We'll, we'll talk about those. This, this is kind of the scary <laughs> haunted. Yeah. In fact, you have a scene in the book where your your dad calls up and says you, you've got a telephone call. Um, and I think that finally gets you the courage to, to pass that door. But you, you're holed up there for hours on end. Yeah. I used to, just, I used to um, stay up in the, the, my room, which, of course, I, I oddly, one of the oddest choices in this whole thing was I actually asked my parents if I could move up in the attic. Um, something that I'm still not quite sure I can explain uh, what drew me to that. But um, I wanted to be up there for some reason. It seemed like, you know, at this time I'm getting more and more cut off from the real world. And I decided, I think, that I wanted to pick my battle of who do I want to confront? Do I want to confront the world where I feel disconnected from? Or do I want to confront this little girl? And so I went up there. And I would, but the downside of that is whenever I would get these overwhelming feelings of terror, I would just stay up there for 24 hours at a time for you know long stretches of time and just not be because leaving meant going down the stairs which meant walking by the door which I thought she was on the other side of hmm. and and you'd rush past cuz you had the feeling that she might reach out I guess and Yeah I, I I my my fear was she would open the door and just reach out and grab me hmm. Yeah that that had to be terrifying and at least at one point you invited some friends over to have a sort of Exorcism, seance. Yeah, um, uh, which is odd because I uh, that was revealed to me when I went to um, dinner after a long time of not of you know not being friends with some of these people that were I knew at this time in my life. Um, I went to dinner with somebody, and during the dinner he kind of blurted out, "Do you still see the little girls in blue dresses?" And I, I had no recollection of him even knowing that, mm-hmm. and. I was kind of like floored, like, did I tell you about that? And he was like, no, you were obsessed with it. Don't you remember our exorcism? And as he told me about this, it started to come back to me for the first time in, you know, over two decades. I just, you know, all these experiences at this time in my life, I really worked hard for many, many years to forget and to kind of bury. And... Um, as with many of these things, when I started talking to people who knew me then, or started uh, things started to come kind of back out of my memory, and so all of a sudden I had half a memory of of inviting this guy and his girlfriend over to my parents' house with nobody knowing what we were doing, and going up and performing an exorcism, but me also being kind of stoned at the time, and writing on the walls in magic marker was my idea of an exorcism. Mm. It was just. just and and I had spent so much of my life trying to forget that this ever even happened, mm. that, you know, part of the experience of, of looking for ghosts is realizing that these ghosts were hiding inside of me, too. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you decided, obviously, to change what this book, or maybe it's the process of writing the book, because it was going to be a kind of a funny romp through haunted places, 
But I, I, b- I believe you, part of it was fear, right? You wanted to confront the, 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 this fear and the, these, these bad memories that were surfacing. You wanted to confront it, which I guess is a, that's a brave decision. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 well, you have a choice. You can either let things, you can either, I, I often say to people, you can control your life or your life can control you. And um, um, I just realized that I was just making so many decisions in my life uh, as a result of this fear that it just, it didn't, it wasn't like a tremendously brave or, 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 or um, big thing to me. It was just, I just said, I, I just need to do something about this. Hmm. We're going to talk more with Eric Newsom. Uh, journalists and uh, written several books. Uh, the current one is a memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. And we'll talk more about his friend, Lara, uh, who's very important in his life, and it turns out very important in the lives of uh, many other people. He's piecing this together as he goes along. And we'll talk about some of those haunted places as well. More with Eric Newsom following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. When we think of bees, images of a busy hive inhabited by an imposing queen bee and her specialized minions come to mind. But not all bees live in cooperative harmony, says USU biologist Karen Kapheim. Some are long rangers. Kapheim and her colleagues from around the world study genetic changes associated with bee evolution. A key feature of increased sociality, they say, is a species' increased capacity to regulate genes in individuals. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening today. It's Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with Eric Newsom, author of a very fine memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. Uh, Eric Newsom uh, is afraid of the supernatural, and for good reason, as he writes. Uh, he became convinced in the early 1980s as a teenager he was being haunted by the ghost of a little girl in a blue dress who lived in his parents' attic. There's another kind of ghost also who's affected him uh, throughout his life, his friend Lara, uh, who was the only one really who could uh, really help him when uh, at, at the bottom of his life at that point, and uh, only to become a ghost herself in a tragic twist of fate. And this is about being haunted in uh, several different senses of that word. It's about memories, it's about witnessing, it's about friendship, and of course it's about that time. And you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, so, Eric Newsom, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about yourself at this at this point. You describe yourself as a kind of an oddball. Uh, yeah, then or now. I, I, I'm still a little bit of an oddball now, I would say, but uh, not, not as nearly as much as I was then. Which which you would like me to describe? The, the, I guess the, well, either, but uh, starting with your the young the young Eric. Well, you know, I, I had a very ex, uh, an exterior of being a very happy-go-lucky kid. Um, kind of made a lot of jokes, did a lot of funny things. Um, uh, was often known for just kind of, you know, not, not being outlandish, but just kind of doing a little irreverent, little goofy things all the time. But as I 
but I, but I think that was a kind of a, a, a crust over a, a, a young man who was uh, very depressed and felt very isolated and alone in the world. And um, as I kind of grew into my teen years and high school years, uh, some of my fun antics became a little less fun. Like I would be sitting in a restaurant with the people and we'd have a picture of, of something to drink, iced tea or Diet Coke or whatever. I would just grab it and turn it upside down. So it would just spread all over the place and go everywhere. And so it became that they were less funny things and more like sabotaging myself and sabotaging things that were happening and sabotaging relationships. And so as you can imagine, probably by the time I was done with high school, I I didn't really have a lot left to cling on to because either through my my behavior or – my you know, the eccentricity or just kind of the weirdness I was undertaking. It was I was creating the world that I felt inside, which is one where I was pretty much alone. Mm. And uh, it did end up with you in a mental ward. Yeah, um, things just kind of continued to get out of control. I was really self-medicating quite heavily. Um, I was feeling very desperate. Um, had even come up with a, a plan to commit suicide. I, I never actually did it, and I'm not quite sure um, what would have happened, though I'm sure that if I hadn't received help, I would have eventually gotten into a much worse place than I and may not have been able to get myself out of it. Um, but uh, eventually, I was just to the point where I needed to be put into some safer environment where I could get myself straightened out and um, um, find a path forward. And even when I did that, I was incredibly resistant and and uh, and um, uh, not cooperative for quite a bit of the time I was there. In fact, yeah, I believe you had a little uh, vial of sleeping pills, something yeah, that kind of reassured you. Yeah, I, I uh, one of my regular uh, uh, drug dealers <laughs> sold me a, a large number of sleeping pills. Um, I kept them in a little glass vial. Um, uh, and that fit kind of neatly into my coat pocket, and I just carried them with me everywhere. And I just remember whenever I would be in situations where I got myself into trouble, or someone was upset with me, or I had messed something up, or just screwed up in any sense, I would just put my hand in my pocket and just kind of roll it in my hand, because I just knew that I could just pop the lid off and just swallow them and be done. Hmm. And oddly, that actually was very reassuring to me and ushering to me because even though that I knew what that would mean, that meant that I could tolerate things knowing that I had an escape plan. And that's actually how I kind of mentally referred to it as was my escape plan of when things got to the point I couldn't bear it anymore, I could just check out. And oddly, that made me able to bear it more, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Because I knew I had that way out. As we heard in the passage you read from the, the prologue, you have several friends from that time who, who didn't make it out. Yeah, a, a lot, actually. And um, it, it kind of, when I first started realizing this was happening in my life, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of treated it like a joke. And I think as I've become a middle-aged man, that's been a lot less funny. Um, and, uh, even it, it, it kind of comes in spurts, uh, even now. And I mean, there's several people who said, well, of course, given the lifestyle you were living at the time, the chance that people would die that you hang around with is significantly higher. Um, 
and I think there was probably a, a small modicum of truth to that, but even since I wrote the book, three people who appeared in the book have died since I finished writing it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. gives you pause, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So it, it yeah. kind of makes me... Now, do I think there's anything to this other than just being a really unfortunate coincidence? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think there's nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, but it just kind of is uh, a constant presence in my life. So even as I'm talking about the stories in this book, um, you know, I'm talking about the the experiences of people who are gone. And do you feel the need, you've talked about feeling the need to witness for Laura, do you feel the need to witness for these other friends? Um, To some extent. um, I think that with Laura especially, I feel like I have an obligation to live a certain life that um, uh, that because I, I can argue that through the time in our youth, I was not the one who deserved to survive that time. And so I've been given an opportunity, and that I show my gratitude for that opportunity by living a life that was worth saving. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel that to some extent with others, too. Um, uh, and it, it influences my decisions and the things I choose to do in my life. Um, uh, there are times when things are difficult and I don't want to do, or there are opportunities I know I'm going to love but maybe hard to achieve in some way that I realized that, hey, what am I complaining about? I have, I'm alive. I have the opportunity to do this, and Doug or Tim or, or Cheryl or, or, or these other people don't. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm going to do it. And a lot of my writing, a lot of my writing tends to be kind of odd and humorous or dealing with cultural eccentricities, and um, uh, especially the book that I'm probably best known for, The Dead Travel Fast, which is about vampires, is a lot of it is me putting myself in very strange situations. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's humorous and funny things happen and interesting things happen. And that comes out of that whole that whole line of kind of like very light gonzo journalism comes out of that same drive of, look, no one else will go here, but I will go here. And the reason I'll go here is because I'm alive and I have the choice to do it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and that's an impetus, I believe you've said, for for people who, I don't know, who search for ghosts. Often it's a, it's a melancholy impulse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. If you go back, this was shocking to me, actually. When I started this book, I started to look at different how different people have depicted ghosts. And the reason I did is when I wrote a book about vampires, one of the most interesting things about vampires is that every culture has a variation on a vampire, but everyone is different. But they all have this this vein that runs through them that makes them kind of feel like vampires, right? All these undead creatures who somehow feed on the life force of the living in order to have supernatural powers. So I assume that the you know, ghosts, I'm like ghosts, you know, people believe actually believe there are ghosts. People don't believe in vampires, but people do believe that ghosts are real. So I just couldn't accept that I expected things to be very consistent, that the way that ghosts interact with the living and, and, and the history of this whole would be would be the same because if this is real to some extent, then um there would be some consistency to it. And what I found is is quite the opposite, that ghosts have been depicted in you know, even Shakespearean ghosts are different than our ghosts. And um, ghosts, going back to, if you look at the uh, in the Odyssey, uh, you look at the way the ghosts are depicted there. They're kind of like bumbling um, idiots, and they have very little uh, cognitive sense of anything. And um, 
it's just uh, we use ghosts like we use any kind of dark creature um, as a way to explain things that we don't understand or to make sense of the world around us. And, you know, ghosts are no different than, you know, the way that people look at Godzilla. Um, it's used as a way to explain things and make sense of things. And mm-hmm. that's not just a contemporary thing. It's the way people have done since the beginning of civilization. We're talking with Eric Newsom. He's the author of the memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. I wonder if you tell me about uh, Lara. This, uh, this was the main impetus, right? And then she's the, in some ways the main character of, of the book. This was the friend who, who helped you to come back after you, you know, were, were very near the end of your rope there. Yeah, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is if you had told me a number of years ago that I would eventually write this story and tell Laura's story in my own, I would have said you were crazy. I had absolutely no interest in ever, ever, ever talking about this. Um, and Laura and the situation around her was the primary reason why. We, we went from, from, we had known each other for a number of years through school and mutual friends. And, but it wasn't until, um, I think she was a year younger than I was. I think it was around the time that I graduated high school and she was just coming back from an exchange program that we went from being kind of, uh, you know, not very close friends to being best friends. Um, We just kind of clicked into each other and became incredibly close, spent a lot of time together. And um, she became a very profound influence on me and I think me to some degree on her. And... Um, we're very intensely close, and uh, this is while this whole process is going on. So it eventually got to the point where there was, I had one friend, her, and despite what I would do, um, she kind of stuck with me, and I also think that I was probably on my best behavior with her because I kind of needed her, and I felt this connection and need to impress and please her. So I would be on my best behavior around her. I would try to succeed so that it would impress her. And so she kind of stuck with me through this whole time. And then after I was released from the hospital, she really kind of helped me kind of figure out who I wanted to be. And then she left. She um, went away to school herself. And uh, I, of course, being this, you know, freshly out of a, of a mental hospital teenage guy, um, t- took everything in the most narcissistic way possible and accused her of abandoning me and leaving me when I needed her and was just awful to her before she left. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, it really kind of harmed our friendship in a na- way that it never really recovered. Mm-hmm. And though we made several attempts to be connected to each other, um, we kind of lost contact. And, and she um, ended up moving back to Canton, Ohio, uh, um, about two years later. And she, um, uh, I, you know, despite me saying how horrible New York was going to be for her, it ended up being kind of bad for her. And, and my, the theory I have accepted is that the reason that she didn't tell me she was moving back was because she never wanted to admit to me that I was right, even though I was a total jerk for even suggesting those things to her. And I had no, never been no pride in being right. Mm-hmm. And 
So she was back in Canton. I was at school like 45 minutes away, um, putting my life back together. And she was uh, riding her bike down the road and was struck by a car and killed. Hmm. And um, uh, I, the, the mystery of my life is why she never let me know where she was. Um, because then when she died, this whole history of her um, her, her uh, not succeeding in school and moving back home kind of humiliated kind of surfaced. And I would have loved for an opportunity to have paid back our friendship and shown her that you know, I was sorry for for the way I had felt about things. And I never got that opportunity. And you, was this, this was friendship? Did you want more? Did, did, what, oh, did I, she want I'm, more? I, I'm sure I was absolutely in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, though, that I was at a point where I needed, I was hungry for connection to anybody, and I felt a connection to her, and I think I, I loved her very much. And um, our sometimes our friendship was more than a friendship, and sometimes it was very much very, some, very, some very strong walls around it just being a friendship. And that seemed to change week by week. Which is, you know, your teenager stuff like that mm-hmm. is okay, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, that com- complicated things, but I don't think any other sense of definition around it would have worked. Um, mm-hmm. If we had tried to actually have a relationship, I think we would have been horrible, and would have you know, then we really would have lost each other. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm really grateful for the relationship I had with her. I wouldn't put it in a specific box, but um, I think if we had tried to, it would have ruined it destroyed it uh, so uh, next thing you know she's she's gone and yeah. uh, so she i guess becomes a ghost in a certain way she haunts you in a certain way um, oh yeah uh, on on down through your your life you you think of her to you or what uh, how does she affect you oh and, and yeah in lots of weird ways the one of the things that convinced me that i needed to write this book this way was that when i would go on these ghost hunting adventures you know confronting all these ghosts. You know, there are four or five in the book, but actually I did about 11. Um, I would come home and I would just start writing um, about what I had done and experienced, and I found myself writing about her. It would just kind of switch into, like, telling a story about her. And I I was so confused by why I felt so gravitated to doing this. And then I was on the Metro one day, which is, you know, in Washington, D.C. is a subway. And um, I saw a girl who looked exactly like she did. It was it was shocking. I mean, I, I remember my, my heart going in my throat. And then I stopped and realized that that there was because uh, there was a while there where I was thinking maybe this is all a mistake and she's actually living in, in Kansas City and, and just hasn't been in touch. Um, but I saw this young woman who looked exactly like her, and I I had um, uh, I was. I, I, and I realized that she was my ghost, that she was the thing in my life that haunted me much more than any kind of spooky apparition could, and that if I could feel that way encountering someone on a subway car who kind of looked like her, that I really needed to kind of exercise this ghost from me. Hmm. Do you think we? Do you, do you think we all have have those uh, sorts of feelings uh, that, and sometimes not. Not pulled to the surface like it wasn't totally pulled to the surface with you. You know, I, I I can't imagine anybody who doesn't. 
you know, one of the things in writing this book that shocked me now that people are reading it is a number of people who tell me I can relate to this book. And I, at first, the first couple times it happened, I was really shocked by that comment because, like, this is a really weird story. How can you relate to this book? And people would tell me some little, some little part of it that connected to them. And then they would also talk about someone they had lost or something that hadn't kind of worked out the way they wanted or kind of a lingering reservation about something that happened in their life. And I realized that that's, that's a pretty universal thing. Um, you can't really live life without having regret or without having um, some sense of loss. You know, I don't think you can really appreciate what you have if you haven't. Mm-hmm. And then w- what do you do? You you set out to to uh, rediscover Lara, trying to find other friends and write about it. What, yeah. what do you suggest that people do about it? I don't know. You know, I, I, I say that, you know, I went to all these haunted places, but the hardest thing I did in this book was reaching out to her family and talking to her mother, who I hadn't spoken to in 20 years. And and I think that the, the good part of this, uh, the, which I think worked out so well for me, was, um, you know, I, have no, I started off with some very clear questions that I wanted answered. Um, and I got answers for none of them. And, but what I got is I realized that the questions don't matter. That it really isn't that I need to have clarity on all these things that happened in my life as much as it is important that I realize that they belong to me and I belong to them. And it isn't that I need to get rid of my ghosts. I just need to learn to live with them. Mm. And whether that's a spooky ghost in my attic or a floating head going around somewhere, or whether it's memories of someone who was very influential and dear to me, that by embracing it, it becomes a part of me rather than fighting it, Mm. where then it kind of controls me. Now I will say, I, you know, I can understand living with the with the memory of your friend. I, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to live with the, you know, the head floating around. I mean, you, you're not saying you do, do you? Oh, I know. Would, no, that, that would be <laughs> yes. kind of entertaining. Would, true. But, but very scary too. You know, one of the you know, I, I encountered so many weird people uh, as a result of of doing all this ghost hunting stuff. You know, there's a, there's one guy here in Washington who I hung out with who collects haunted items that he buys on eBay. And I think that but somebody realized at some point that if you can't sell something at your yard sale, just say it's haunted, and you can sell it on eBay. And mm. I've seen haunted yard tools. I've seen haunted whatever. And, and this guy collects them all. So he, like, he doesn't invite these things into his life because he mm. says that whenever he gets a new haunted coffee mug, uh, weird stuff starts happening in his house. He, he actually goes looking for it. He, oh, yeah, he buys yeah. this stuff. Yeah, okay. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with Eric Newsom, author of the memoir Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. Back after this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about a memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost scrap of paper, and what it means to be haunted. Our guest is Eric Newsom. You can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com. There's a, a beautiful scene in the book uh, where you're attending, I guess, you, neighbors to, or you're attending uh, 
this event, I guess, that happens once a year, this, this flower that blooms uh, only once a year oh, and, and at nighttime. Serious, yeah. Yes. Uh, so people would gather because it, it's very kind of an ugly plant, but when it blooms, very beautiful. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, a night-blooming cereus is, um, um, I think that's how it's pronounced. It usually has like one or two blooms a year, and for some reason my friends David and Gina, um, theirs, which looked dead the rest of the year, um, had about 20 different blossoms, and, it, and, and they, they literally open on one night, are open, and then they die during the next day. So we sat and watched this plant, this huge plant, open up about 20 different uh, kind of orchid-like um, blossoms, and they were stunning. And the thing was, is you could actually watch this bush, and it was shaking, I think just because of all the energy going on inside it, mm-hmm. and it would, we would sit there and watch these things open. I mean, if you sat there for an hour or two, you'd see three or four of them open, which sounds incredibly boring, but when it's happening, it almost feels like a dance. It's so mm-hmm. beautiful. And so we all sat around there. We, we moved the tree outside on their patio. It's, it's, like a, it's like a bushy plant. And we moved it outside in the patio and just let it sit there. And we just kind of, everybody gathered around and sat there mostly in silence the whole mm-hmm. time. And somebody casually said, now, which room is it that's haunted? Yeah, and, and my friend David and Gina are, live in Akron, Ohio, and refurbished an old rubber baron house, um, which there are plenty of there from the days of the rubber industry. Um, uh, a beautiful six-bedroom, six-fireplace house that had been gone completely, completely to seed, basically a shell when they bought it and refurbished it. David is a writer and wrote a series of newspaper columns about the about the whole thing. And one of the things they did was they brought in a, a, a psychic who, a medium, uh, who went through the house to see if there were any spirits in the house and found what she felt was a, was a restless spirit in the summer bedroom, which just happens to overlook the patio where we were sitting. Hmm. And you're able at that point to, I guess, confess to your friends or to ask them, because you you normally don't bring this up, right? Yeah. One of the uh-huh. things you you found is that people find you're afraid of ghosts. The outcome, the ghost stories. Yeah, they start telling ghost stories. It's just the most ridiculous thing, and people still do it. I I'll, there's a line of people asking me to sign their books uh, when I go to book readings, <laughs> and every one of them's throwing out ghost stories. I'm like, you realize that this is just not you know, if someone is scared of heights, you don't talk about being on tall buildings. If someone is scared, if someone is an alcoholic, you don't sit there and talk about how great that vodka tastes or something. It's just ridiculous, but people do it all the time, and mm-hmm. um, uh, so I just basically don't tell people. But um, that night, for some reason. Uh, you know, David and Gina are very good friends of mine, and um, they asked about why I was scared of ghosts or why I shuddered when someone was talking about the summer bedroom, and I told them I'm scared of ghosts, and they started asking why, and probably for the first time I started to really outline what became this book of just the whole connection between everything, and I don't think I realized it until I started telling the story um, to them how all this kind of comes together between Laura and the little girl and my life and the things that happened to me during that time and then how much I've carried that with me. 
Wonder if you could tell me about uh, one of the, you know, the places you went to. This, this this is a very brave thing. I I you know, put myself in your place. I don't know if I'd have the guts to do it. One one trip especially had the hairs in the back of my neck standing up, and that's your visit to this uh, former correctional facility, this prison, yeah. which seems. <laughs> and and people actually give tours of it on a certain nights of the year. You would go in before nightfall, and and uh, I I'm I'm getting chills right now thinking about this. Maybe you can tell us about this or or another one of the places you visited. Oh, uh, well, the Mansfield Reformatory that you're talking about, many people know that because um, the movie... Um, oh, uh, um, Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Thank you for helping me remember that. Shawshank Redemption was filmed there. All the exteriors were filmed there, some of the interiors, and they still have some of the set pieces in there. So you'll be sitting... And, and, and so this place is, was a functioning prison from the late 1800s until, I believe, the 1970s. And then they started to put it out of commission. So the place now is this, they put a roof on it so it's, you know, it's not leaking or anything, but it's just this, this mess of many, many, like the cell blocks are six stories high of this twisted, corroding metal, lead paint peeling off of everything, the walls, the ceilings, broken plumbing, uh, uh, you know, doors off of hinges. Just, it just looks like this abandoned old prison, right? This absolutely run down, decrepit place, dangerous place, and they take people on tours through it. Um, mm. They do it during the day. Uh, they take people during tours during parts of it, um, but a couple times a year, they will put people inside at night, lock it down. The doors open from the inside out, so if you're inside, you can get out, but they don't open from the outside. And the rule is, you can stay in until you walk outside, and then once you walk outside, you're done. And they start uh, uh, about a half hour before sundown. They give you a tour of the, so you can understand the lay of the place. It's 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 huge. It's just a, a shockingly large place. And um, two main wings in the center area uh, where the warden lived and the staff worked and everything like that. Then they cut the power so that it's completely dark. And you watch the sunset through these massive windows. And then you're in there for the night. And... Um, oh, uh, two or three dozen people do this at a time. By about 11.30 or 12, um, we, we had all agreed to meet back um, to have something to eat. And after that, most of the people left. Hmm. And so then the rest of the night, it's just you exploring with these groups of people. And the thing about most people don't know when they watch ghost hunting shows on TV is they see it looks, seems very thrilling and exciting. But it takes hours and hours and hours and hours. You're sitting around in the dark, bored and scared at the same time, just not quite sure what's happening. And so, you know, here we were in this very scary place, pitch black, with headlamps on. Um, And the people who were left were all huge. uh, People who were left were all people who had been in there a couple times before, had experiences. So they're telling you their stories and showing you places where they saw things. And people get really, they just basically freak each other out. Mm -hmm. And so you spend the night doing that, and it gets really just, uh, I'd never do it again. Did did you see or feel anything? No, not there. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a couple times I had experiences I couldn't explain, but oftentimes when... People said they were having experiences. There were several times. I went to a, a town called Lilydale, which is uh, entirely um, occupied by spiritualists. So we follow a religion that believes that spirits and ghosts 
kind of communicate with you to tell you messages from God, um, that uh, I was there and I would be sitting next to someone who was having a very profound experience, being able to see something in front of them, see some spirit in front of them, uh, to be able to feel things, people touching them. And I would be sitting next to them and nothing was happening to me. Outside of being a little freaked out because they were so upset, but nothing, I would experience nothing. Hmm. Uh, I wonder, just we have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, you mentioned the questions. You, you went with questions. You came out to not having questions answered, but that's okay. I, I wonder, what are some of those questions? Well, I'm, I'm basically my foolish pursuit. I went into this thinking, you know, I'm a journalist, and I'm, you know, I have a pretty high threshold for being a, a skeptic and needing things to be proven. So I'm going to go into all these scary places and I'm going to find out whether or not ghosts are real. Yes or no. Box checked or not checked. I either experienced it or I didn't. And there's no, there could be no, it's going to be a high, high threshold for truth. And I also felt that if I, you know, I had suppressed equally with my own history, I felt I had suppressed so much of this stuff that if I, you know, if I just spent some time with it and I just did the scary things of talking to people who really didn't have any interest in speaking to me for the last 25 years, or kind of confronted some of this, that I would find every answer I needed. So I would end up walking away from this process, knowing whether or not what I experienced as a teenager actually could have happened or not, and be understanding all the people in my life and my own actions and what it really meant and, and, and so on and so forth. And I walked away with probably more questions than I started, but probably a sense of peace around both issues that I never really had before. Hmm. And where does all this experience, writing the book and everything, leave you with regard to, to Laura? Huh, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. You know, I... Uh, it's, um... It's, if you had told two kids cruising the back roads of Canton, Ohio, with nothing to do, no money, no real idea of what was going on in their lives, that... 25 years from now, someone will be sitting in Utah listening on a radio to someone in Washington, D.C. talk about the experiences that were happening in those people. That's, that's the oddest thing in the world to me, uh, is that that's the most surreal and unexpected part of this whole thing, is that that could ever happen. Mm. And so I think I'm, I'm one part of me is I, I, I don't think my this has changed my opinion of her at all. But it's kind of changed her role in the world and exposed people to her. And I think the most gratifying thing of the whole thing is is that people they read this the small tidbits of this person they see in a book, and they start to understand who she is, and start to see her, and really find her an intriguing and interesting person and character. And I guess I just feel some satisfaction as the world gets to know her too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in talking to her family and friends, they feel the same way. It's like. You know, everybody understands why we felt she was special. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you've, you've done for her. Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, it's debatable whether she would want me to do it or not, right. but I, it's happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very interesting. Um, we didn't even talk about the 80s rock or the lost graph of paper. That's a very interesting uh, story there, this this uh, lyric that uh, that she gave you. You finally solved that mystery, but uh, we'll leave that for people to read the book. Uh, Eric Newsom, author of the memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, a story about friendship, 80s rock, a lost graph of paper, and what it means to be haunted. Eric Newsom, a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. 
Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Years ago, my mom was given the curious duty at our church of being supervisor of funeral luncheons. She was asked to provide the bereaved with slices of hot ham, scoops of cheesy potatoes, and gooey pieces of chocolate cake. This was no small feat, depending on how well the event was attended. Metal chairs had to be unfolded, plastic coverings were draped across the tables to hide crayon marks, paper goods were sorted, napkins dispersed, and flowers arranged. Before the somber masses returned from the graveside service, the gym at the church would be converted into a makeshift dining area. The kids became indentured labor for this task, at least those of us too young to rebel and too old to be napping. I was a willing, if aggravatingly inefficient employee. My job usually was to carry bowls with half a cube of softened margarine to each table, along with the salt and pepper shakers. In the church kitchen, I'd open a cupboard to a billow of pepper dust, spicy, pungent, and hot in my nose. I'd scoop up armfuls of the plastic containers, trying not to leave a speckled trail behind me on my way to the gym. One white shaker and one gray one for each table. Even then, I remember thinking it was a bit weird that we had an entire cupboard dedicated to pepper and salt. Why pepper? I still think it's kind of strange, our obsession with pepper. How many recipes call for the addition of salt and pepper to taste at the end? How many restaurants stock pepper at every table? In how many home kitchens are the pepper shakers as indispensable as a sharp knife? Why not a cinnamon shaker or fennel or even nutmeg? When did salt and pepper become a thing? Salt makes sense. It's essential for our bodies. Almost everything we eat has some sodium in it. And we have receptors on our tongues devoted to the taste. If we ate no salt, we would die. So I can see why it's popular. You can't say the same for pepper, though. It tastes good, sure. A musky prickle across the surface of some beef or the speckled pungent lift stirred into warm tomato soup seems as natural as the seasons. But it isn't our genetics to like pepper. It's just embedded in our culture. The stuff inside the gray shaker, ground black peppercorns, come from the peeper negrum vine and are native to India. White peppercorns are the same as black ones, just without the husks. They tend to be preferred by cooks in Southeast Asia and by chefs who don't want dark specks in their light sauces. But white pepper has the bizarre tendency to smell like body odor and therefore hasn't enjoyed the same popularity. Green peppercorns are the unripe berries from the same vine and have a slightly different, stronger scent. Peppercorn has been a popular part of the world diet since 2000 BCE. What job does pepper do in our cuisine to make it so ubiquitous? Pepper is, in the words of food writer Sarah Dickerman, a kind of punctuation. Food often needs a burst of fresh flavor to taste balance. It makes long-cooked food seem less murky. Pepper can help with that. But so can other things like chopped parsley, fresh garlic, or lemon zest. Of course, you can't keep any of those in a church cupboard for the occasional funeral luncheon. And their dehydrated forms lose much of their charms. Could another dried spice do the same thing? To challenge pepper's long-standing supremacy, we need a spice with heat, pungency, a bit of bitterness, a good flavor without being overwhelming, and an impossibly long shelf life. 
cumin used to sit on ancient Greek dinner tables and was sprinkled across savory and sweet dishes alike. But it doesn't have pepper's kick. Maybe chili pepper? Or how about Tabasco sauce? It's got a kick, a good flavor, and can last forever. It's already a staple on many American tables. But it is quite acidic and would mess with the balance of delicate dishes in a way that pepper just doesn't seem to do. Well, if you have any good ideas for pepper contenders, let me know. I'd like to topple the condiment dictatorship at some point in my life. Meanwhile, I don't plan on boycotting anything. My Caesar salad just isn't the same without a good dusting of the fresh, cracked stuff. This is Lael Gilbert with Bread and Butter.